This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Surrogate by Tessa Hadley, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 2003. When he asked for a pint of Stella, his accent was ordinary, not like Patrick's educated one. When I smiled at him and made some comment about the football match, he blushed, and I guessed that he was shy and maybe not very clever. The story was chosen by Curtis Sittenfeld, who's published five novels, including Prep, Sisterland, and Eligible, which came out last year. Hi, Curtis. Hi, Deborah. Now, The Surrogate, this Tessa Hadley story, came out almost 15 years ago. Did you read it back then? Yes, I read it in the magazine. Uh Uh-huh. So you were probably still a student, like the character in the story? (laughs) I might might be older than you think I am. Um, So I'm about to turn 42. Mm -hmm. So I was... uh, Oh, no, this is... (laughs) You were in your late 20s. You could have been an MFA student. In in September 2003, Mm -hmm. I actually was teaching at a boy's prep school mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., a boys' high school. I was in my second year teaching there. So I was, I, you're right, I was in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. What was it in this story that, that caught your attention? So I love everything about this story. I mean, it's, it is funny to me because I think if you had said a few weeks ago, like, when, when did the surrogate get published? I would have said five years ago. And (laughs) when I saw like, actually, it was published 13 years ago, it was sort of striking to me. But it it is interesting, because I I think that the way I read this story has changed as I have become much, much older Mm -hmm. than the protagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like the story feels a little bit like, if you make a, a really smart friend in adulthood, and your friend says, I have this kind of crazy story to tell you. You know, you've become close enough that you confide in each other. And it just feels like that. Like it feels sort of um, succinct and juicy and surprising. And, and you, you learn a lot about the person <laughs> telling it. This was, this was only the third story of Tessa's that we published. She's, she's now published 23 stories in the magazine. Had you read anything else by her back then? Or was this the first... I don't know, actually. I can't. I, I feel like this might have been the first one that I read, um, but I'm not. I'm not sure, actually. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's it's typical of the work you've read since then by her? I do. I mean, there's an there's an interesting thing she does, where I feel as if um, this story is maybe easier to follow. Like it's a very clear story, and mm-hmm. sometimes she does something that that I like, but it, it makes you work, where she has so many characters in her stories that you almost have to, like, write them down. And often <laughs> it might be, like, it's like it's like two women who are friends, and then, like, they each have the, the man they're married to, the man they're having an affair with, and then, like, three children. And so you almost <laughs> have to make a chart, even though it's only, like, 12 pages. So I feel like this, this is um, maybe more distilled than some mm-hmm. of her stories, mm-hmm. But I think it's I think its themes are very consistent with what she seems to be interested in. Yeah, it's very simple. There are only three characters, and two of them exist mostly in her her imagined versions of them. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. There was one review of Sunstroke, the the story collection, the surrogate um, eventually appeared in, that said it's not what happens, but the significance of what doesn't. That's so exquisitely illuminated by Hadley. Do you think that that works with this story? Yes, definitely. That's a perfect description. <laughs> All right. Well, we won't, we won't reveal it yet. We'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Curtis Sittenfeld reading The Surrogate by Tessa Hadley. The Surrogate. When I was 20, I fell in love with one of the lecturers at my college. I know that this is a very ordinary thing to do. And I know now that lecturers, when they notice yet another smitten girl child traipsing moonily around after them, simply sigh and feel anxious. They feel anxious and all the other things you would expect, too, flattered and confirmed and a little bit stimulated. His name was Patrick Hammett, and he taught courses on Shakespeare, 17th century poetry, and critical theory. 
I took all his classes. I made him my interpreter of the whole world. Patrick was tall with rather bowed shoulders. He was hollowly thin, except for a small, soft beer belly nestled in the stretched cloth of his T-shirt above his belt. He wore his thick black hair down to his shoulders, tucked behind his ears. He used gold-rimmed glasses to read, but took them off when he was talking, swung them in his fingers, and sometimes dropped them. Without the glasses, his eyes were deep-set and squinted slightly. In a crowd, in a club, you wouldn't have picked him out as particularly good-looking. But in the lecture room, sitting with us in the democratic circle of chairs that he insisted upon, his looks were a power, a force that I felt physically, like velvet against my skin. I loved the whitened pressure points that his glasses left on the bridge of his thin, crooked nose. I loved the big, nervous hands he was always waving in the air, gesturing uncontrollably as he spoke. Of course, I didn't have a chance with him. Who was I? I wasn't anybody. I wasn't even one of the cleverest students in his classes. I wasn't an absolutely average student either. I was aware that I had a quirky way of seeing things, which sometimes came out as insight and sometimes just left everyone looking blank. Patrick encouraged me. Once he reminded the class of something I'd said. You remember the point that Carla made in last week's seminar? Another time, after I'd made some remark about freedom of choice in Much Ado About Nothing, he said, That's very well expressed, Carla. I couldn't have put that more eloquently myself. This made me very happy. But I didn't delude myself. I wasn't the kind of student who would get a first-class mark. When I tried to put my thoughts down in writing, the dart of intuition that had been clear and sharp when it flew into my mind got tangled in something muffling and clumsy. And Patrick's occasional surprise at my penetration didn't mean that he had singled me out. I didn't really exist for him outside that circle of chairs in the lecture room. In his 17th century poetry seminar, he read us the Exequy by Henry King. Dear loss, since thy untimely fate, my task hath been to meditate on thee, on thee. Thou art the book, the library, whereon I look, though almost blind. Tis true, with shame and grief I yield. Thou, like the van, first took'st the field, and gotten hast the victory in this adventuring to die before me, whose more years might crave a just precedence in the grave. But hark, my pulse like a soft drum beats my approach, tells thee I come, and slow howe'er my marches be, I shall at last sit down by thee. I can't adequately express the effect this poem had on me then. I don't remember now what season of the year it was, but I do remember that the fluorescent lights in the lecture room were on in the middle of the day because the sky was so dark outside, navy blue clouds pressing close to the earth like an artificial ceiling. Little gouts of rain were spitting against the window, and in the gently sloping field outside, the campus was built up around an 18th-century house on an estate farm by the Duchy of Cornwall. The bullocks, instead of lying down as they should have done with rain coming, were jostling uneasily and heaving up against the fence and clambering onto one another's backs. When I look at the poem now, I see that it is the lament of a much older man for a young wife snatched away by death, and that it depends upon a confidence in the resurrection of the body on Judgment Day. I don't know anything about those things, but at the time I felt that the words of the poem were so immediate and relevant that they spoke to me not just through my mind but through my body. I could hear that drum. Its beating came right up out of the floor of the classroom and shook me through the soles of my feet. I made one of those remarks that didn't come out well, and nobody took much notice of it. He longs for her, and she isn't there, I said. It sounded too obvious to need stating. I'd wanted to use the word sexual. We were trained to see sexual implications everywhere, and surely in this case I would have been right, but I couldn't bring myself to be the first to say it. Patrick wanted us to talk about the metaphor of the beloved object as text. Thou art the book, the library whereon I look. For me, the text was Patrick. 
all the passion, the concentration of the poem I attributed to him. It became my intimation of the pulse of his life from which I was shut out. He was only six or seven years older than we were, but his life seemed to be made of different stuff than the lives I was familiar with. As far as I knew, he wasn't married or living with anyone. Someone said that he'd once had a relationship with a student, although this was against the rules. That didn't make me any more hopeful. She had probably been one of the clever ones. She had probably been beautiful. I didn't think I was. My looks, I was small and blonde, with eyes that made the kids at school call me frog face, were like the quirky things I said in class, good on a good day. I dreamed about him all the time. I don't mean sleeping dreams, although sometimes he was in those as well. Too many of my waking hours were spent fantasizing scenes in which Patrick and I somehow met outside the classroom, and our relationship developed out of distant acquaintance into passionate amour. I was very exacting as the author and director of these scenes. Nothing could happen in them that was absurdly improbable or out of character. Patrick was never allowed, for example, to tell me that he had always loved me, that he had been fascinated by me from the moment I first walked into the lecture room. The scene could begin with no more than his friendly appreciation of an interested student, a teacherly investment in my intellectual development. He might at most be allowed a little stir of vanity at the depth and earnestness of my response to him. Still, even given these constraints, the journey from the plausible encounter to the moment when he reached out for me could be traveled in a thousand different ways. Even in my fantasies, I didn't dare reach out for him in case he turned me down. He had to be surprised out of his position of friendly neutrality and into a dawning, uneasy recognition of his growing attraction to me, an attraction that he perhaps couldn't quite rationally account for. The transformation could be precipitated in various ways. These were the only extravagance I allowed myself. Sometimes we would be accidentally stranded by a breakdown in the middle of nowhere after he'd innocently offered me a ride home from college. Or we'd be caught by a freak storm when stopping by the cottage of a friend of his to pick up some books. Or he would have to take refuge in my room one night after being beaten up by muggers and left bleeding in the road just as I was on my way home. But my favorite scene took place somewhere I don't think I've ever actually been. I imagined a path through a green meadow. I needed to be clear in my mind about exactly how we'd got there. Sometimes it was in the aftermath of another encounter nearer home. Why don't you come for a walk next weekend, and I'll show you where Coleridge is supposed to have started riding the ancient mariner. Or a whole group of us had been out on a college field trip, and Patrick and I, while talking, had got separated from the rest. This was tricky to imagine, since the only trip he ever came on was to the theater at Stratford. Or he had employed me to do some research over the holidays, and then on impulse said he'd like to buy me tea in the country as a reward. We'd walk down the grassy path until we reached a gate which opened into a wood beyond. At the threshold of the wood, the light changed from broad sunshine to a secretive and dappled shade. There were rustlings among the fallen leaves that were spread like a carpet under the trees. It was a place I'd invented for a transition, for the passage over from my life to his, from his to mine. The gate was made of old gray wood washed silvery by the rain. It swung crookedly on rusting hinges. He held it open for me, or I climbed over it, and he helped me down. Something in the change of light stilled us, made us pause. The wood with its pillar-like tree trunks and its tracery of branches was a cathedral. He was still supporting my weight, or I was cast up against him in some way as I came through the gate or passed him on the narrow path. I could feel the heat of his body under the ragged gray wool of the sweater he often wore. I could only really sustain the stories up to this point. After that, his face came closer. He put his arms around me. There was kissing. There was a pressing together, and the narrative failed. It lost its sequence. 
I could and did imagine plenty of what happened after, but not in any clear way. It came in a hallucinated muddle that I would try to disentangle. I'd return again and again to the gate, the threshold, the movement with which he reached across the distance between us. I'd start again from there, but it was never any good. The dream beyond that point was a loop of film repeating itself, exhausting after a while, dispiriting, because in truth it was nothing at all. In my second year, I was so short of money that I got a job working three evenings a week at a pub in town. It must have been an old pub once, with lots of twisty little rooms winding around the different levels, but the walls had been knocked down, and it was now one huge cavernous space, low-ceilinged and gloomy. There were still confusing steps up and down in places, and the floor changed from flagstone to wood to carpet. Drunks and women in heels sometimes tripped and spilled their beer. Video games flashing ruby and emerald-colored lights stood against the walls. The place didn't have much atmosphere. It was more fashionable to go to one of the new bars with long pine tables and stainless steel counters where food was served, or to one of the quaint old pubs that had kept their little rooms and served real ale. Big parties came to my pub because there was usually room to seat them. And men came in to watch football on the TV screens, the kind of men who didn't want roasted vegetables and pitas or real ale. I'd worked in nicer pubs. When I lived at home, I'd worked in our local, where the old-timers expected you to start pulling their pints the moment they pushed open the door. I didn't mind the anonymity of this place. I was often on with temporary staff I didn't know, and that meant I didn't have to talk too much. If we weren't busy, I just kept order behind the bar. I made sure that the glasses were clean, the lemons sliced, the drip trays empty, the bottles and the optics replaced as soon as they ran out, the ice bucket filled. While I was taking care of all this, I forgot that I was a student. I rarely saw anyone from the college in there, students or staff. But one night, when I came back from asking the landlord to change a barrel, I thought for a moment that I saw Patrick. A man with the same long, narrow build and thick, shoulder-length hair was standing with his back to the bar, a pint of lager in one hand, looking up at the TV screen. Although this was exactly the sort of plausible scenario I was always dreaming up to bring us together, in reality, I didn't want it to be him. I panicked. I didn't think I could cope with my two roles at once, competent barmaid and besotted student, and I had no idea how to respond when he turned around and recognized me. But the bloke, when he turned around, wasn't Patrick, though he did look rather like him. Rather like him, but quite different. He had the same crooked nose, more exaggerated even, and the same close-set eyes that were revealed when Patrick took his glasses off. But he didn't wear glasses. He didn't have any of Patrick's concentrated excitement. When he asked for a pint of Stella, his accent was ordinary, not like Patrick's educated one. When I smiled at him and made some comment about the football match, he blushed, and I guessed that he was shy and maybe not very clever. He probably would have liked to keep the conversation going, but he couldn't think of what to say to me. And I got a certain pleasure out of the situation— I could play at talking to Patrick without its really mattering. I made small talk as I handed the man his change and stayed with him until I was called away to serve someone else. When he left the pub 15 minutes later, he put his glass on the bar and said goodbye to me in such a way that I knew he'd planned it in advance, hoping that I'd be looking in his direction. Then I forgot all about him. I didn't expect to see him again. But a week later, he was back, and after that, it was a regular thing. He came with his friends, and I think he would have come regardless of me. They were just a gang who met up often and were going through a phase of drinking in this particular pub. But he did remember me and looked for me when he came in the door and blushed if I served him. When his friends saw us chatting together, they teased him. They made him go to the bar for every round, and then they whistled and laughed to encourage him. Go on, ask her, they said, meaning me to hear. Fuck off, he said, red-faced, pretending to be busy with the first mouthful of his pint. Every time I saw him, I'd feel the same shock at his likeness to Patrick, 
People come in physical types. I've seen girls I immediately recognized as belonging to the same type as me. Small and round with these deep-lidded frog eyes. There are dark ones and blonde ones, but the type is as unmistakable as if we belong to the same subspecies. And even though there were specific points on which they didn't match, this man and Patrick had the same overall effect. The man in the pub was blurred where Patrick was definite. His skin was coarser. His hair wasn't as black and straight. It was dark brown with honey brown curling bits in it. He was a little shorter than Patrick, but more muscular, as if he did physical work. He told me that he was a gas engineer, which wasn't all that physical, but presumably more strenuous than lecturing on the literature of the early modern period. He had a little beer belly like Patrick's. His jeans hung on his narrow hips in the same way. Actually, oddly, considering how unlike their lives and personalities were, they even dressed the same. They wore tight v-necked sweaters over jeans without a shirt. They wore black t-shirts with those little cap sleeves. I suppose they had both found the styles that suited them. And soon something began that I'm shocked to think of now. Something that I initiated. It would never have occurred to him even to speak to me beyond ordering his drinks if I hadn't started it. I didn't just flirt with him. I went all out to make things go further. I knew that this was supposed to be a risky and demeaning strategy for a girl. It certainly wasn't something I'd ever done before. But with him, I was safe because it didn't matter. It honestly wouldn't have mattered to me if he'd stopped coming to the pub and I'd never seen him again. So it could do no harm to play my game. If I wasn't busy, I'd watch him from my vantage point behind the bar. Sooner or later, he'd become aware of this and look up from where he stood or sat with his mates, and then I'd smile at him, a long, heated-up smile, and he would redden and look away again, smiling too. When he came to the bar, I rushed to serve him, even if one of the other barmaids was closer. He bought me drinks, and I clinked glasses with him and asked him about himself. When I gave him his change, I made sure that our hands touched. I don't think that anything like this had happened to him before. He wasn't a complete innocent. I found out that he'd been engaged to someone, and she had broken up with him a few months before. But he wasn't used to being pursued by a stranger. The shock of his looking so much like Patrick never completely left me. On the one hand, I felt I had the measure of the man he was— pleasant and rather dull. I knew that he and his friends spent the evening talking about cars and football and teased each other in the explosive, foot-shuffling, flaring-up way I remembered from the boys at school. From time to time, they'd run out of things to say to one another and sit in silence, taking mouthfuls of their beer. On the other hand, his appearance flashed a promise to me. It was as if Patrick's qualities were locked up inside him somewhere if only I could find the key to release them. Eventually, I got him to the point where he couldn't help but ask me if he could give me a lift home from work. I felt embarrassed then, as if my game had gone too far. He waited for me while we cleared up and reassured me that he'd had only one pint and was all right to drive, and then he led me proudly around the corner to his car, which looked very shiny under the street lamps. I hoped that he hadn't cleaned it for my benefit. I think he felt more confident about his car than about himself, but the impression was wasted on me. I couldn't tell one type of car from another. While he was driving me to the house I shared with some other students, we both went shy. I nervously asked him about his work, and he told me that he had worked for British Gas for several years and then set up his own business with a friend. For tax reasons, they'd recently had to split the business in two, one side dealing with boilers and central heating systems and the other with gas appliances, although in effect they still work together. He explained this to me in some detail, and I was bored. I was hoping that none of my housemates would be around when I asked him in for coffee, and they weren't. It was always better when he wasn't talking. 
When he was silent, I could recover the illusion I was pursuing. I barely talked to him about myself, about college, about my classes, about my plans. I barely talked to him at all. I turned on my lamp, which had a pink bulb, so that the room was dim. I kissed him, I touched him, I undid his clothes, I made all the first moves. I don't think he was quite comfortable with the speed at which these things happened. He was a nice chap. He would have preferred to take things slowly. He would have preferred to have me as his proper girlfriend. On the other hand, he was a man. He didn't turn me down. Perhaps he felt a little ashamed of himself afterward, or ashamed of me, more likely. I don't remember him staying long in my room. I don't remember watching him while he dressed to go home. I think he shared a flat with his brother and another bloke, but I never went there. We didn't go out together. We only ever did one thing together. For a couple of months, before I quit my job at the pub and went home for the summer, we did that every week. Of course I was pretending the whole time that I was with Patrick, that it was Patrick who was making love to me. Only the pretense was never complete. Even in the dim light from the pink bulb, even if I half-closed my eyes and didn't look directly at him, even when I was mixing together in my mind the physical reality of our bodies grappling and one of my stories about Patrick, the knowledge that he wasn't Patrick seeped irresistibly in. This wasn't the real thing. It was only a secondhand enactment of love. I have forgotten to give his name. His name was Dave. Only a few years have passed, but a lot has happened since then. These are the years when a lot happens, when your life lurches across crucial transitions like a train hurtling across points at speed. It doesn't always feel that way at the time. At the time, you sometimes feel that life has slowed down to a point of frozen stillness. There's no tedium like the tedium of 20, but all the while, you are, in fact, flying fast into a future that has already been decided by a couple of accidental encounters or scraps of dreams. In the end, Patrick Hammett reached out for me. Unbelievably, what he actually said when he did it was that he had always loved me. He had been fascinated by me from the moment I first walked into the lecture room. Or words to that effect which just goes to show that you mustn't trust a scrupulous realism, that sometimes sloppy fantasy comes closer to the true state of things. I became the person it had been unimaginable for me to be, Patrick's girlfriend, Patrick's wife. We had to wait until I had finished his classes before we could tell anyone about this, and those months were the most wonderful months, the secret months, when I had to sit in his classroom and engage in discussion as usual, as if there were nothing going on between us. I love Patrick. I think we're well-matched. But of course, I'm not infatuated with him anymore. You can't go on being infatuated with someone you share toothpaste with, whose crusty, inside-out balls of socks you have to put in the washing machine. I still count on his intelligence and his articulate way of speaking. But I get irritated at the way he gulps in a breath of air just before he pours out some hoarded-up information, and at the way he guides conversations around to an opportunity for him to be surprised at someone else's ignorance. When he's holding forth in an argument, he fills any gaps while he searches for words with a loud um so that no one else has a chance to break in with a different point of view. I never told Patrick about Dave, and I've never seen him since. I once looked up gas engineers in the yellow pages and found a company that might have been his. I couldn't look him up in the residential phone book because I never knew his last name. In my first few months with Patrick, if I ever thought about Dave, I was just embarrassed at what I'd done. But then the idea of him began to preoccupy me like an unsolved mystery. Why had he lent himself so unquestioningly, so pliably, to my fantasy? How could he have explained to himself what was happening between us? I try to remember the details of our lovemaking, and I can't. I can hardly believe that we were pressed naked against each other again and again. I feel as if I had wasted an opportunity, longing the whole time for him to be someone else. What was he feeling when he didn't speak? 
There's no real equivalence between my situation now and my situation then. I'm happily married to Patrick and given the chance would not even seriously consider throwing in my luck with a stranger I have nothing in common with. That little hunger for a lost chance gets expressed only in my fantasies, which contrive themselves almost in spite of me. No green lane, no gate into a wood. He is a gas engineer in the fantasy, of course. He comes to my house to mend the boiler. At first, we pretend not to recognize each other. I show him the problem and hover discreetly while he works. He asks me to hand him a spanner from his toolbox, and when he takes it from me, he touches my hand with his. I wish he weren't a gas engineer. It sounds too much like a scenario from one of those funny pornographic films of the 60s where the milkman or the postman is served up to the bored housewife amid all the conveniences of her own kitchen. But I've tried giving him another profession, and I simply don't believe it. It has no connection with the real man. When he stands up to tell me that there's a problem with the boiler's valve, he steps toward me and begins to kiss me. It's then that I see that what we did together has had consequences for him. It has made him rather reckless sexually. He has learned the audacity to reach across through all the mess we make with thinking and talking, through to the body and the body's truth. I have to be careful not to believe in this. It is only a dream. That was Curtis Sittenfeld, reading The Surrogate by Tessa Hadley. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 2003 and was included in Hadley's story collection, Sunstroke and Other Stories, which was published by Picador in 2007. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Curtis, I saw somewhere that you included this story on a list of your five favorite romantic literary love stories. Do you think of it as romantic? I mean, I guess it depends on your on your de- definition of romantic. Which, <laughs> when I was asked to make that list, I I, I sort of did some unintentional soul searching, where because I thought like these are very romantic selections to me that I think someone else might be like these are weird <laughs> and depressing. So I don't I don't know. I mean, I think this I almost feel like this story is maybe sexy more than romantic, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's also the opposite of sexy. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, it's interesting just to kind of jump to the end that Carla, the narrator's fantasies about Patrick always involved sex. They didn't really involve marriage or living together. And uh, and then her fantasies about Dave at the end also involve sex. They're not about any sort of connection beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that do you think that in marrying Patrick she got more than she actually wanted? I mean, that is sort of the implication or, or I mean, maybe that's what it is or maybe it's just she's come to a sort of adult, mature acceptance of the fact that life is not very romantic most of the time. I mean, I don't, maybe those are sort of like glass half full, half empty descriptions. Except that even in the midst of that maturity, she's she's having sexual fantasies about the gas engineer. Uh, do, do you feel like that's, that's unusual? Are you are you implying? That, don't we all know? No, I feel like no, um, she, she hasn't come to terms with what it was that she 
that she was desiring, really. Well, one thing that I think is is interesting about this story that, again, you know, we were referring to, like, it came out 13 years ago. I was in my late 20s when I read it. I'm now in my early 40s. I think I probably, when I first read it, read it as more romantic that, like, her um, English professor falls in love with her. And, and, you know, even though she perceives herself as mousy, he, like, recognizes that she's special and he has strong feelings for her. Mm -hmm. And then, but if you read the story and almost, like, think about the timeline of it, it's sort of like, wait, did she get together with him when she's 21? And... That's, I mean, that's kind of young to to meet the person you marry, and like, is that is that enviable? Like, she's obviously a person who has a very passionate inner life, and maybe she would have benefited from dating other people in her twenties or something. Like, it's like the, the this idea of like, I think probably if you're twenty, it seems more romantic for your English professor to fall in love with you than if you're forty. Yeah. <laughs> And he's also only, she says, six or seven years older, so he's still in his 20s as well. Yeah, true, true. Do you think, so at the beginning of the story, she she's she is insisting that she's unexceptional to him, that she doesn't exist for him outside the lecture room. And clearly we, we find out that she does. Why, why do you think she gets that so wrong? Well, I mean, again, <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of like positive and negative way to, to answer this. But, I mean, he's not necessarily that exceptional either you know like maybe and and it could be like she's correct that she's sort of unexceptional as a student or as a as a person but that the intensity of her feelings for him are something that he he can perceive Mm -hmm. they come through I wondered you know reading it for the second or third time for for this purpose about that Henry King poem you know, which she sort of misunderstands, you know, that it's a, it's a bishop who's lamenting his his wife's death. Um, and she reads it as a kind of a, a drumbeat of, of Patrick coming for her, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that he's but but perhaps he actually was trying to send her that message with that uh, with that poem. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think I think there's also what's conscious and what's subconscious and you can you know like somebody I don't know you know if two people are having a conversation there can there can be like ways of phrasing things that are more or less provocative and it's it's not necessarily like the the speaker made a decision but it just just sort of pops out that way um and so so I think it's like it could be that could be accurate and it could be not even conscious on his part yeah yeah, well, it seems like there's a lot happening under the surface yeah, between yeah. them. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that I, I like this story. Yeah. Why do you think that um, in her fantasies, everything always kind of comes to or stalls at the moment of crossing that threshold or passing through that gate? Well, I love how she imposes <laughs> these rules on her fantasy life. Um, like, yeah. I just think it's really funny and it's endearing. And it's so great that she's, like, trying to be very careful and realistic. And, and what she's most careful and realistic about is wrong. Um, yeah. So she seems like she's someone who feels things so strongly that it's almost like she she can't sort of overstimulate herself or she like it's like <laughs> so thrilling to imagine that essentially that they would like embrace with their clothes on that she she, she can't be coherent <laughs> after that in her own brain it's almost like it's just it's too thrilling or it's too much what she wants and she's i mean in a way i think the story is about how tantalizing things are that are out of reach. And so it kind of yeah. makes sense. It's almost like she can't, like, look look on with her eyeballs at, like, what what really could happen. And she, she needs to, like, avert her eyes from her own fantasy. Yeah. Well, it's almost like it's, it's sexier, even in fantasy, when she can't actually have it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the one of the sort of central parts of the story is the is the issue of class, as in so many English stories. You know, Patrick is is educated. Dave is working class. Carla, it seems to me, comes from a working class background herself. That she's 
she had to bartend at the local pub when she was still in high school. She now has to bartend at a pub to get herself through university. There's no money. Dave and his friends remind her of the boys she knew in school. So you sort of feel that that should be the side she's she's on in a sense. It's what she's come from. But maybe do you think that her her fascination with Patrick has to do has something to do with a kind of social aspiration? Yes, I do think so. Like I think that she sort of romanticizes his intellectualism. I mean, I think she's also smart and educated or in the process of becoming educated. So it's it's sort of debatable which man she has more in common with. Like, it's sort of like she's, based on her upbringing, she has more in common with Dave, but she's on her way to having more in common with, with Patrick. So I think it's it's not surprising, and I don't even think it's really snobby that she finds him much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a, as big a difference between the two of them as, as she assumes? Ah. Uh... Again, yes and no. I mean, I, I think that uh, in a way, again, the story is sort of about how much the the story that she tells herself affects her own behavior. And even it's almost like she's so um, self-conscious in class and she's so brazen in the bar. And it's because of I mean, sort of like it's sort of the difference between the men, but it's also sort of the values that she's ascribed to the differences or like she's intimidated by one and she's not at all intimidated by the other. Yes, there is a difference. Like I think that she can have a very different kind of conversation with Patrick than she can with Dave. But I guess you could also make an argument that she never gives Dave (laughs) the opportunity. I mean, there's sort of like here's Patrick like you know, teaches class on poetry and, you know, Shakespeare. And and literally, she almost doesn't talk to Dave. So it's like she doesn't, she doesn't give him the opportunity to use words. And so it's unknown, almost like what's, what's inside the soul of Dave, which I do think she yeah. acknowledges at the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, she refers to Dave as, as being blurred, where Patrick is definite. It seems so clearly that those those two things are in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Know, it's not, uh, how do you think this story plays on the reader's sympathies? I mean, who who should we be sympathizing with? And does that change? Well, <laughs> I always sympathize with the unlikable female character. Now, I mean, <laughs> again, that is an incredibly subjective question. Like one reason yeah. that I like Tessa Hadley is that I think she handles gender in a really interesting way and, and like, sometimes directly addresses issues of feminism and the, the discrepancy between what a sort of strong feminist woman wants to want and what she really wants and how that changes over time. And But all, which is a long-winded way of saying, I, just having, you know, been a writer myself and you know, overwhelmingly my protagonists are female and I get a lot of feedback in in the, you know, time in which we live. It's very easy for readers to find writers and give a piece of their mind. I suspect that Tessa Hadley sometimes gets feedback that her protagonists are not very likable. And to me, they're very likable and very recognizable and they're sort of speaking truthfully and saying things that mm-hmm. lots of people feel but wouldn't necessarily admit to. They're self-interested and they're judgmental and, you know, they they sort of, I don't know, <laughs> betray their friends or they she has disregard for the, the sensitivity of Dave or something and just kind of uses him yeah. as a sexual object. And, and all of that to me makes her like a really rich character. And so it's almost yeah. the question of who deserves sympathy. Like a part of me is like, who cares who deserves it? You know, it's like such a well-constructed <laughs> story and it, it like contains yeah. human yeah. truths. And yeah, I mean, I, but which yeah. is to say, of course, of course, poor Dave deserves our instead of <laughs> Patrick, who's like the full of himself, pretentious, you know, with crusty socks, like 
professor husband <laughs> or Carla, who always wants the man that she's not with. And, and I mean, she should probably be grateful that like any man likes her since she's mousy. <laughs> so those, those are <laughs> not guy. my views, but, you know, those could be yeah. one's yeah. views. It's, it's funny just to think if the genders in the story were reversed and there's a man in love with a woman and pursuing and sleeping with another woman who looks like her simply for that reason, one might feel more indignant. <laughs> That's interesting. I think I would totally read that story. That is a really interesting idea. I actually had the idea recently. Um, do you know, I probably won't do this, but do you know how Liz Fair, like one of, I think that her sort of breakthrough early album was supposed to be sort of a response to a Rolling Stones album. Do you know this? And I was like, I was, no. I thought to myself recently, it would be interesting to sort of take really famous um, kind of male stories, whether it's like Updike's A and P, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of rewrite them either from the female point of view or just tell a similar story where the protagonist is female instead of male. Don't you think that'd be super interesting? <laughs> I do feel that if this one were were turned around, it would read differently. Yeah, it definitely Even if everyone would. Everyone were were exactly you know had the same inner life and had the same you know desires and so on. Um, well, there's I mean, and actually in Sunstroke, there's a story where, as you probably know, I don't think it was in the New Yorker, but but there's a story where an older woman and like a essentially more of like a boy than a young man it's not like they're they're not having sex and they're not they never even kiss but she definitely sort of you know sits next to him inappropriately or whatever and it's Mm -hmm. it's an uncomfortable story it's not a romantic story and and I think it's it's super interesting there's another thing that that I think she does Tessa Hadley does really well in general that I love which is like she jumps forward, you know, 25 years or 30 years mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I just, I like love, I just find it so interesting and satisfying when, when writers do that. Um, but it's, there's something I'm, this is actually, I guess, a, que- a question for you is when she says like, not so many years have passed, how many years do you think have passed in the story from? Oh, when she's, when she's married. It's probably ten years, you know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's decades. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's but it's not somewhere she, between five and ten. Yeah, yeah. She's not like yeah, it, which is it, it's sort of strange. Well, so once she is married to Patrick and fantasizing about Dave, who who's now become the man of mystery to her, does that tell us something about fantasies in general, or is it is it very specific to this character? Maybe both, actually, because I I think that. Uh, one thing that it it sort of says about her fantasies is that perhaps they hinge on being unrealized, which I think is not that unusual. Yeah, you think you you would be fantasizing about getting it all, but she's fantasizing about almost <laughs> almost getting to that point. I mean, it, what one thing that's fascinating to me is that the fantasy at the very end, Dave has come to to check her gas meter or whatever <laughs> it is, and. Um, Something starts between them, and she says, it's, it's then that I see that what we did together has had consequences for him. It has made him rather reckless sexually. He's learned the audacity to reach across through all the mess we make with thinking and talking through to the body and the body's truth. It seems to me at that point that the point of her fantasy is not to get to this point of fantasizing about sex with Dave, but to um, make herself feel less guilty, to make herself feel that she helped him oh, with that's what she interesting. did rather than but damaging him. To me, there's there's not much implication that she damaged him. Like, it's like maybe she hurt his feelings a little bit or maybe she confused him or something. But I don't I don't think that that there's really the implication that that she was cruel. Do you think she was cruel to him? There's, a, there's that moment when she, you know, she starts to undress him. She's not really talking she says he probably would have rather had me as a girlfriend. And that clearly is what he wants. You know, he wants to know her. But instead, he just sort of gets taken home and and, and she has sex with him. And he, <laughs> she doesn't even wake up to see him go, you know. She doesn't even remember how he got dressed or when he left. So he probably does feel used, don't, don't you think? 
Well, except, I mean, he wouldn't know why. He wouldn't know what she's doing or why she's doing it. But she's absent even when, when they're having sex, you know. Her, she's desperately trying to sustain the fantasy that he's Patrick and, and not to let him break that fantasy. I think what you're saying is accurate, but it's it goes on for several months, right? So so I yeah. think that he, that Dave is complicit, and you know it's not like a one time mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. where she is like half there and half tuned out, yeah. and and then like I think he, he's an adult, and he could and and so I kind of feel a little bit like it's a situation where like is it his ideal romantic situation obviously not but like you know we don't always get exactly what we want he seems to be getting something out of it i don't my heart does not really bleed for him or whatever weep (laughs) you can't help thinking that his fantasy back in the pub when he's blushing every time she looks at him is is not that she's going to take him home and take his clothes off but that they're going to fall in love but maybe that's my own romantic take on it. <laughs> Who knew <laughs> that you were so? Yeah. No, I feel like, um, in a way, he is kind of a cipher. So you, so it's like maybe he wants that, but it doesn't. It doesn't even seem as if they are uh, particularly well suited to each other, and that that if there were almost any other woman who acted exactly as she acts, they could have elicited the same behavior from him. So I, I mm-hmm. feel in a way that that the reason that Patrick matters much more is that to her or to the story is that he he sort of recognizes her as a distinct person and she recognizes him as a distinct person. Whereas I think that Carla and Dave are almost like generic female, generic male to each other. And they they could have had the opportunity to get to know each other better, but I don't think that they would have realized that they were soulmates if they had. Yeah. What's amazing to me is that Tessa can have these characters whom we don't know all that much about and we never get any background really on any of these people. And yet her physical descriptions are so detailed that you feel you've met these people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've seen them. Yeah. It's it's just I, even just down to like those that little, you know, small soft beer belly and his the stretch cloth of his t shirt above his belt or the way he he swings his glasses and his fingers when he's talking and then drops them sometimes, you know. Just all these little details are so familiar from life. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So so I feel like one thing I love in general is like almost like if a story does things where I would think like, oh, I don't, I don't like that in stories, and and but then it pulls it off perfectly. I love it, and it's like there's almost no dialogue in this story, and there's there's not even that much. There's this one compressed section of external action, but it's mostly summary, which I feel like tends to be less interesting than scene. And then there's li- there's like the only dialogue is that dialogue in the bar. So it's it's sort of like shouldn't be as juicy as it is her control over language or her specificity is so impressive exactly the way that you're you're saying like she just she evokes something so perfectly and her choice of detail is is so vivid like what she sort of knows to leave in and leave out is is fantastic and also I'm you know I'm surprised when I go back to it by the structure, you know, when I print this story out, it's 12 pages. Whereas I think there's this little bit about her being married to Patrick at the end. That actually happens on page eight. So it's it's really a third of the story is after all of the events of yeah. the past, which you don't realize when you read it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You feel like it's the very end. It's some, There's something sort of magical about this, the, the way she has this story play in your mind. Yeah, yeah, which, again, is one of my favorite things where, you know, I'm sure that I would think as an editor, you can often see how the machinery is turning. And as a writer, I can see how the machinery is turning. But I love being tricked by a story or, like, when I think I I don't know how the writer did that and almost like I I could, like, take my scissors and cut up the paragraphs and figure it out. But I, but as a reader, <laughs> I got kind of 
like lulled or like I got surprised. I feel like the that line about an ending, which again, I guess this isn't even the ending, but the the twists. Um, there's this idea of in writing that a story's ending is supposed to be surprising yet inevitable. But I feel like this not only does that once, but does it twice. Where I was definitely surprised that first that. Patrick says exactly the thing that she thought was sort of too perfect and romantic to ever say. So she wouldn't even, she didn't even wish for it. And then I love that she still fantasizes about Dave. Like I, I, the fact that there are these two twists in what is like a relatively short story, a short, short story. There's also the sort of two little writerly winks at the reader where she has, you know, in the beginning she has Carla saying I was very exacting as the author and director of these scenes nothing could happen in them that was absurdly improbable or out of character and you sense you know Carla as writers <laughs> trying to make everything real and feel real in her stories even though they're her own internal fantasies then later she says well you mustn't trust a scrupulous realism <laughs> you know sometimes sloppy fantasy comes closer to the true state of things and so, you know, Tessa in, in doing these things has fully reversed herself with her yeah. kind of wink to the writer. That part makes me laugh. Do you think that if Carla had never said to us, of course he would never say something like, I, I noticed you the moment you walked into the room and I, f- I found you fascinating. Do you think that then if Patrick said that, we would think like, that's so unrealistic. But But she kind of lulled us or tricked us into being like that's not realistic but of course it could happen (laughs) I think it's just a reminder to us as readers that we can't believe everything we're told you know that narrators are subjective that they're when she's narrating her own story we're not getting the whole story yeah yeah well and she's also in a way she's sort of undercutting the power of writing or the power of words with the end when she's when like the line like um he has learned the audacity to reach across through all the mess we make with thinking and talking through to the body and the body's truth like sort of saying that the physical is a above the the analytical or like the verbal i i kind of like that that writerly betrayal (laughs) to like yeah yeah, and of course what she's done with, with Patrick is a lot of thinking and talking. Yeah. But also I do feel that that's her trying to somehow make her feel that she did a good thing by not talking to this guy before she got him into bed. <laughs> you know, that she she taught him there's no point in all that stuff. Um, let's just, let's just you know, strip down. That's um, interesting. And that, that has had a a positive effect on him. I think I read the ending a little differently from you where I don't see it as her assuaging her own guilt. I see it as more like almost like she's turned on by the idea that she had an effect on him, which is almost the opposite. Like if what you're saying is sort of like she knows she had an effect on him and she feels guilty about it. Whereas I feel like m- more like it's it's titillating to her to think that she made an impression. Because I would imagine that what she thinks is she sort of disappointed him or let him down, but it wasn't that consequential to him. Mm-hmm. Or also perhaps it's titillating for her to think that she had that audacity. Yeah. To just pick up a stranger in the pub and take him home. Yeah. Yeah. Which which I think I think is consistent with her perception of herself as mousy that she she does this really bold thing, but she doesn't it's it's like she doesn't do it in what she thinks is a real way. She does it in what she thinks is a pretend way, but 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 it's not pretend. Yeah. Which again, I feel like is this kind of comment on storytelling almost. Yeah. Yeah. And fakeness and yeah, like like what's or just how much the story that we tell ourselves affects our real behavior even though that story is so subjective and so personal. Yeah. And later, she can't even really remember it. She can't imagine that she was, you know, lying in bed with this man. Um, and she can't remember what they did. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's almost as if it's been sort of 
subsumed. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like it's a, sto- a story she read about someone else and doesn't remember that well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Curtis. Thank you very much for giving me a chance to chat. Tessa Hadley is the author of six novels, including The Past and Clever Girl, as well as two story collections, Sunstroke and Other Stories, and Married Love. She won a Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize last year and has been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2002. Curtis Sittenfeld's most recent novel is Eligible, which was published in 2015. She'll publish her first story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It, next year. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Tessa Hadley reads a story by Nadine Gordimer, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>